1 Samuel 24, that's where we left off in our study of David and Saul's um, life right now. 1 Samuel 24, we're going to pick up there. And Heavenly Father, we do always like to acknowledge your presence and our desperate need. We really need your help. We cannot understand anything without the Holy Spirit's enablement. And so we ask, Father, touch our eyes and help us to see the wonderful truth here that sets our hearts free. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are in chapter 24, which really reminds me very much of a scene from the movie version of Les Miserables. Now, uh, most of that movie, as most of you know, uh, is about uh, this villain, Jeffrey Rush, an evil, mean-spirited chief of police. He plays a guy named Javert, and he's on a ruthless, obsessive pursuit of the hero, the good guy, the God-fearing man who is named Jean Valjean. Uh, now, his life is being tormented by this Javert, and he's forced to live as a fugitive for years and years, living in fear and hiding. Now, suddenly, there's an unexpected twist in the movie. The tables are turned. And here's a picture of that infamous scene. The bad guy on your left, you can hit the lights there and see Javert's mean-spirited face. There you go. Javert is on the left. He's been hounding Valjean, the whole movie, for about eight or nine years at this point, and he's had the power on the left, and suddenly, out of nowhere, he gets handcuffed and captured, and now he falls into the hands of Valjean, who now has the opportunity to end this terrible nightmare and the years of torment being hunted down by this mean-spirited, evil chief of police, Javert. Now, does he kill him? Well, I'm not going to tell you in case you want to see the movie. But um, I'll, I will let you know as the lights come back on uh, that the audience certainly expects him to. And I, I worked and taught at a vocational college where there were mostly young men for 10 years. And I showed this movie for just about all of those 10 years because the gospel is so rich in the movie. And so uh, I asked them, uh, if you were Valjean, would you have shot Javert? And all the hands would inevitably <laughs> go up and they would say yes. Even Javert expected it. Javert says in that scene, he says, you should kill me. <laughs> and then he says, end this nightmare. And then he says, if I catch you, I won't show you mercy. And everybody's like, pull the trigger. <laughs> But something noble rises up within Valjean, and he turns down the opportunity to take matters into his own hands, and he shows mercy and releases his pursuer. He puts him back into God's hands. Now, that's exactly what's going to happen this chapter between evil King Saul, who has the power. He's driven by this jealous, insecure pride and rage for years now, 
hunting down the good-hearted David, who is king-elect. He's anointed, but he has not been given the throne yet. He is Saul's rival, and he's living as a fugitive, as most of you remember, uh, living in fear, hiding in caves and forest thickets, and uh, Saul is going to find himself now at the mercy of David now. In a, in a very embarrassing way. Now, you'll recall that King Saul lost his privileged position as king over Israel because of consistent unbelief and rebellion. Now, the sting of it for me is when Samuel says, and the Holy Spirit's empowering him, he says, you know, the Lord would have made this work with you. He would have made it work. He would have established your kingdom forever. If only he would just believe and repent, but he would not. And um, so the Lord raises up David, and the scriptures say, a better man, a man after God's own heart, to replace him. And as right before we dive in here, uh, Saul knows all of this, but like all lost souls, he continues with his own agenda and his hard heart. Uh, He wants his will over God's will. And that's really the mission statement of all unrepentant sinners. It's my way, not his way. David will be king, says Saul, over his dead body. And unfortunately, uh, that will have to be the case. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1. He who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will be suddenly destroyed without remedy. And unfortunately, because of Saul's hard heart, that's going to be the case with him. So let's pick up now. We're somewhere in the middle of these fugitive years. They last about 10 long years. Saul is in hot pursuit with an entire army hunting down David, who's running for his life with 600 ill-equipped men uh, with him. Now suddenly, as I said, the tables are turned And in a most embarrassing and awkward way. Verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men went far back in, were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, a moment of opportunity. Now, normally we would say that this verse contains TMI, or too much information. Uh, But when it comes to God's revealed word, every verse has a purpose. Now, TV's Judge Judy's byline that repeats on every commercial break is, Real cases, real people, Judge Judy. Well, the Bible is all about real cases, real people, 
with real needs to which even kings must give attention. Now, nobody... (laughs) Do you know how many ways I could go with this text and how many little comments I could be making? I am showing such self-control. You have no idea. And I think I should stay that way. I'm going to stay the course. Thank you. Nobody is going to dispute that this meeting is no coincidence. It's nothing short of the providential hand of God. The timing of this royal potty break and of, (laughs) of all the caves, there are hundreds in the En Gedi, we will be visiting them on our trip to Israel. There are hundreds to choose from, and there's lots of time to attend to one's need. But when the timing is so providential, they all agree, including David, David's men, and Saul, that it's God's doing. So in the chapter, you will hear all of them say, wow, this is, this is the hand of God. This didn't just happen. Here's providence at work. But that's not the issue. What will concern us is how does the Lord want to use this occasion? Everybody can see that the Lord had his hand in it, but not everybody is clear as to why. Does he want to A, take Saul down, B, end the nightmare, C, fast forward to 2 Samuel and make David king, Or D, something more profound? The answer is D, something more profound. Very good. Now, uh, regarding God's providence, even in Saul's personal matters, there were some stories from 9-11 survivors uh, with a nod to providence and how providence spared their lives. Let me read from that article to you. I've mentioned this once before. One manager arrived late to work that day because his son started kindergarten. He survived. Another man was alive because it was his turn to bring donuts to the office, and that took him a long time. One woman was late because her alarm clock didn't go off in time. Another woman was alive because she missed the bus. One car wouldn't start. One couldn't get a taxi. Still another got stuck on the New Jersey turnpike because there was an accident. One spilled food on her clothes and had to take time to change. Because of that, she survived. One went back to answer the phone. One had a child that dawdled and didn't get ready as soon as he could have. One man put on a new pair of shoes and got a blister. So he had to stop at the drugstore and get a Band-Aid. And in that time that it took, the deed had already passed, and he survived. Let me just say this. The Lord God is in the spill, and he is in the delay with the kid, and he's working in the blister and the dead battery, and he's managing the king's potty break. Where can I go from your presence? Where could I hide? From the Lord. If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, in Hades, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand 
will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is just involved, causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. So uh, just in the opening verses, you have Saul is back. He's like the Terminator with Arnold saying, I'll be back. And, and he, every scene he comes back, Saul is there again. You'll remember what just happened. And this is an important point. Last chapter, Saul and his men were closing in on David. They were rounding the mountain. They had almost caught him. They didn't even know how close. They were just moments from a real victory. And when all of a sudden, in God's providence, somebody calls out, Come quickly, King Saul. The uh, Philistines are invading. And so they call off the, the pursuit of David. The men realize what a providential intervention of God's hand that they take a memorial stone and they call it the rock of escape. But listen, it's a temporary escape. And all of our escapes are temporary. All of your victories are temporary, except the one that saved you, of course. But every challenge, every difficulty, once one need is met, Just trust me, there's another one just looming around the corner. Once one relationship is reconciled, another's about to fall out because that is the stuff of the life that we're involved in. David Guzik on this verse. We often wish that our next victory or our present victory would be permanent. We wish that the spiritual enemies who pursue us like Saul pursued David would simply give up and we wouldn't have to bother with them anymore. But even when we have victory and they are sent away, they come back. And we'll keep coming back until we go home to be with the Lord. That is the only permanent victory we have. That's the way it is. We fight the good fight until the end. And, and you, you'll be more depressed than you need to be if you have an incorrect theology about what the Christian life is all about. It's about slugging it out and walking with God in a world where we fall into trials and temptations. The devil never goes away. He always keeps trying. We have a sinful nature. We have friends that are imperfect, uh, and the list goes on. First Peter 4.12, dear friends, don't be so surprised when you come into all kinds of painful trials as though something strange were happening to you. He says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. All that is just because Saul, Saul keeps coming back. God keeps doing this wonderful victory and Saul keeps coming back. And I just see that as such a strong teaching. So so real quick, Saul's closing in again. He had to be successful with the Philistines, which is another great mystery to me. Here's this crazy king who's not in God's will, but God's given him victory here with the Philistines. He comes back. He has wicked spies that tell him where David's hanging out or is one of the 600 men a kind of a double agent, because there's always a Judas. There just is always a Judas in a story. Uh, he enlists, Saul does, 3,000 chosen men. In the Hebrew, it's like special forces for this one guy, David. 3,000 to David and his 600, that's a five-to-one advantage. Not to mention they're chosen. They're special fighters. 
against the 600 with the uh, who are ill-equipped. So, so Saul arrives at the sheep pens, and, and now the cave is attached to the regional sheep pens, and so the cave is rather large and deep and long. It can hold 600 men because it could hold 600 sheep or more. And so the guys are back there, and in walks Saul alone, obviously. His men are on the outside. Now, David's men are back in the recesses of the cave. They realize Saul's in the house alone, unsuspecting, vulnerable. David's guys are ecstatic. And they let David know, here in verse 4, what God's will for his life is. David, hey, remember when God told you? And we quote, I am going to give you your enemy into your hands to do whatever you please with him. Here it is, the fulfillment of what God's word for you was. Go for it, man. Of course, the problem is this. God never really said that. We have no record of that. And by the, how the story unfolds, we see that that is a false conclusion that his friends have made. Where did they, what did the Lord say? Last chapter, he said, I'll give the Philistines into your hands to do as you please. Ah, so follow their logic, because they have a lot vested, don't they? David's success will be their success. And so they're a little biased, so they want the scripture, the word that came to David, to be what they need it to be. Go kill this guy, because when you kill this guy, we're all going to be in a better place. And so here's their logic. The Philistines are David's enemy. Saul's trying to kill David. Therefore, Saul qualifies as an enemy Therefore, this word applies. So it's close. I'll give the Philistines into your hands, which is pretty close to I'll give your enemy, anybody who's trying to kill you, into your hands. Unfortunately, that's not what God said. David knows that. One writer said this, May God grant us discernment and protection from well-meaning friends who like to interpret God's will for us on the fly. David had more discernment than that. David's not buying it. Obviously, you're going to see that. He's a man of God. And what does it mean that you're a man or a woman of God? It means that you can discern between your own voice, God's still small voice, and the devil's schemes or well-meaning friends or what the world thinks is best for you. Where do you get that kind of discernment? Hanging around with the Lord, spending time in his presence, reading his word, serving him, walking with him day in and day out, and his wisdom is given to you. So David creeps up on Saul, and instead of plunging his weapon into Saul, he takes his razor-sharp and uh, sword with precision and removes a small corner of Saul's discarded robe. Verse 5 through 7. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked in the Hebrew, it means to tear apart. He rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. All right, let's pause there. 
The first point was a moment of opportunity. Now the second one, a lesson we can all learn from. Here's what makes David a man of God and a fit leader. Number one, unfathomable trust in God. He says all the time, I don't need to promote myself. I don't need to to make my agenda work through my manipulations. I put my trust in God. Number two, respect for spiritual authority. Uh, The king may be crazy, but he's the king. And David comes under him still. He respects the office, if not anything else. And that's what we're called to do. We respect God has it put into place a servant leadership and he has a flow of delegated authority and it works well when we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing. Thirdly, his courage to confront and rebuke his men. It's never easy to tell well-intentioned friends anything once they get it in their minds that you ought to do this or you ought to do that and you have to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, you have to do that. That's God's word. That's God's will. We were all there when he said, through Samuel, remember? No, you guys don't have it, right? It takes a lot of courage. How about a heart of mercy and forgiveness? You know, the thing with David is he's always willing to forgive. He has love that covers a multitude of sins. He's got God's kind of love. David's not going to stoop to Saul's level. And lastly, just here, he has a spirit of self-control. He may look weak or like he's overreacting or he's like being some kind of wimp that he cut off a little piece of this guy's fabric who's been hunting him down. He's a mass murderer by this time, Saul is. Killed the priests of the Lord. And he's conscience-stricken for cutting a little piece of fabric. David cut off a giant's head. David's not afraid to do this guy in. At all. But he's got self-control because he knows what the voice of the Lord is telling him. Let me take care of this guy. Not you. You don't lift a finger. You don't stoop to his level. It takes a lot of strength to not pull that trigger. It takes a lot of strength and courage to close your mouth when you know the truth. Somebody's being slandered, either you or somebody you love. And God says, let me take care of it. That's not weakness. That's strength. How much strength did it take for the Lord Jesus Christ when they said, hey, oh, Mr. Son of God, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Why don't you come down from that cross and prove to the world that you are who you say you are? What do you, how do you, how much strength goes into that where, where someone could spit in his face and have no response but, Father, forgive them? Well, that isn't weakness. That's a strength that you and I know nothing about. That comes from the Holy Spirit. So David returns to the guys in the back of the cave, not with blood on his sword, but with a little piece of linen fabric and no ordinary fabric at that. Uh, it's a serious moment. Conscience stricken in the Hebrew. The word for conscience, lave, 
and it means heart or mind or conscience. And the word for stricken is nacha in the Hebrew, and it means to kill. In fact, the word is used in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 15, where the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should kill him. The word for kill there. And so notice this grief to David's heart comes afterwards. Hindsight is always 2020. What? Why? Why is he just, why is his heart killing him that he did this? I think beforehand he's thinking, all I want to do is get close to him. Take a little piece of proof. I just need proof. Why? What can I do? Oh, there's the robe. I'm going to take some of that and prove. He's thinking, I just want to show the guy, look, I got close to you and I, and I didn't kill you. And then he gets back with the piece of fabric. And in my mind, I hear the guy say, hey, just like Samuel said, you tore the kingdom away from him and now it's yours. And you've told him, you see? I am after your kingdom, and I will be the next king. And I took it, just like Samuel said. And he went, oh, no. He kind of, uh, it seems maybe perhaps that he did the very thing he's lived his whole life not to do. The very thing Saul's accusing him of. The very thing David wants nothing to do with stealing the kingdom away from Saul. Manipulating the circumstance uh, so that he himself could be king. And so, you know, David was determined that when he sat on the throne of Israel, it wouldn't be because he got Saul out of the way, but because God got Saul out of the way. He wanted God's fingerprints on that work, not his own, and he wanted the clean conscience that comes from knowing it was God's work and God's will. So meantime, Saul leaves the cave and goes on his way, and David moves into position from uh, behind Verse 8 through 15. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said, he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I haven't wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. So we've seen a moment of opportunity, a lesson we can all learn from, and now a speech of a lifetime. Now, David makes his case here for innocence to Saul. He addresses him with respect. And I love this guy. I love David. 
What a wise man. Remember one chapter had that adjective about him? Said he was wise five times over and over again. Are you wise? Are you wise in all your ways like David is? And so he's a wise diplomat. He gets a safe, he lets Saul go halfway down the hill or whatever. Uh, He's not quite to his troops probably yet. Uh, Verse 8, David calls out with a respectful title. Saul looks up, David bows. Perhaps he's at the mouth of the cave. He bows in reverent submission. And David has this heavenly wisdom. What's he doing here? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. A gentle response will soften somebody's angry heart. He knows all of this. He could have said, you know, come out of the cave. He sees a safe distance away, his enemy, King Saul, and says, hey, you crazy lunatic, look up here already. You know, you demon-possessed madman, give me a break already. You know, he could have done that. A lot of us would have approached it that way. But he's wise. And he's also a risk taker, isn't he? If the speech bombs, they're all dead men. He's got 3,000 guys a stone's throw away or so. They're in a cave. Where are they going to go? He's a risk taker. You know, usually it's common sense. You, 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 you watch yourself. But sometimes God calls us to go out on the limb. Men of God, women of God often find themselves kind of out there a little bit. Now here comes the speech. And look. Another attribute. David's so gracious. Listen to this. He says, why do you listen to those men who tell you that I'm after you? Oh, come on. We all know. We've been reading the story, David. These ideas are bubbling up from his own wicked heart. In fact, men are telling him otherwise. But what a gracious way of saying, look, it'll be easier for him to apologize and to say, hey, yeah, they were wrong. Instead of, hey, yeah, I'm wrong. You see, love does that. He is agape love. He can forgive. He can cover a multitude of sins. And so David puts the matter before God in verses 10 through 12. Here's a paraphrase of what he said. It's pretty self-explanatory. The crux of the matter is this. Saul, you see now with your own eyes. I had the chance to kill you. The Lord lured you right into position, gave you into my hands. Everyone wanted you dead. Kill him now, they said. But I said, God forbid, no way. You're the king. God put you on the throne, Saul. I'm your loyal subject. I'd serve you as I'd serve my own father. I will never lift a finger against you. You would be dead right now if I listened to my men. Look down at your robe. Instead of cutting you, I cut your robe. I spared your life even though you're trying to kill me. So I'm laying this whole thing out before God. I'm about as significant as a flea on a dead dog. So I'm asking God to deal with you and fight against you on my behalf. But it won't be my hand that does it. If anything, it'll be his. So a life filled with humility total surrender, profound faith and trust in God, a heart that has love still and doesn't get jaded, 
But wait, there's more. Verse 13, furthermore, David's got principles. So he says, Saul, as the old saying goes, he says, wicked people do wicked things. That's what that means. It means characters revealed by conduct. So what is he saying? The reason I'm not going to kill you is because I'm not wicked. And the reason you're trying to kill me is because you are. I'm not stooping to your level. When people slander him, he doesn't slander back like the Lord Jesus. Because from wicked people come wicked behaviors. You see? So you're going to go ahead and do what's been done to you. And, 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 and from wicked hearts come wicked behavior. We need to be a cut above. We have the Holy Spirit of God in us. I love what Paul says. Why? Oh. Quit acting like ordinary men, he tells the Thessalonians. Well, what what does that imply? Quit acting like an ordinary guy. That you're not an ordinary guy or a gal. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And God expects something other than how a natural human sinful heart would respond in any given situation. That's when people are supposedly able to see our light. And recognize, wow, something's different about this person. If I killed you in a murderous rage, Saul, then I'd be just like you, right? Let's finish up 16 through the end of the chapter. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me of a good deed you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David's loving and forgiving, but he's not dumb. So he goes right back up there, even though Saul's cried a lot of tears and said all the right words. So we've seen a moment of opportunity a lesson we could learn from a speech of a lifetime. And now, I'm sorry, but a pathetic response from a pathetic man. Now, I say pathetic, meaning sad and miserable response. Because why? It's temporary. It's surface. He's got the big tears. He's emotionally stirred. Saul's been emotionally stirred and disturbed (laughs) for many chapters. On several occasions, he sounds just as Christian as anybody in this room half of the time. But then we see what comes out of his heart and life. Now, how can we know that it's only surface? Well, he would stop chasing David. Does he? No. We get one chapter reprieve and then starting in 26 and verse 1, the race is on again. You see, so because I know that, everything he just said is meaningless. 
It's meaningless. I didn't get to your heart. You're a better man than I. That's the truth. You've said the truth. You spared my life even though you didn't uh, have to. You'd be justified in killing me. What an extraordinary good deed because you spared not a friend but an enemy. True. May God bless you for that. How spiritual and kind and civil. And P.S. I know you're going to be king. And I know the Lord is going to establish Israel through you. But I just have one request. Would you remember my descendants? Nice guy. Like, don't kill all my kids like we normally do when we exchange monarchies. And keep my name from losing its good reputation. Once again, we see Saul with a self-centered attitude. Now, you know, awareness of the truth can't save you. Uh, Saying the right words can't save you. Crying tears is not enough. Though these things can accompany the real deal, they aren't in themselves the real deal. Ask Judas, because here's a quote from Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and to the elders. He says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Tears, remorse, confession. Is there new birth? He goes out and hangs himself, and Jesus does comment and says, you know, it would have been good that he had not ever been born. So it doesn't appear to have been the real deal. Lots of people feel sorry for lots of different reasons. But until that, like in Revelation, when John is given the book, the word, to eat, and it's sweet in his mouth, it goes down into him. The whole idea is getting God's word and Christ himself inside you. It can't be just in your mouth. You have to swallow. It can't be just in your mind. It has to be assimilated into your life. And so this guy, he's got a lot going on. He's got the tears. He's got the stirred up emotions. He's classic Luke chapter 8 with the parable of the seeds. Jesus says, let me put it to you this way. It's like uh, the kingdom of heaven is like me sowing seed, gospel seed. And it falls on the hard path sometimes. And it doesn't penetrate in and there's no life there. But here's where Saul comes in. He says, other seed falls in shallow ground. It springs up and you see, whoa, whoa, there it is, life. And then as soon as the sun comes out or heat or some kind of adversity, it dies and withers out because there's no root. There's no real life. You saw some movement. There are going to be a lot of folks like that, unfortunately. A lot of Saul's came really close. Uh, Alan Redpath said this. I agree totally. He said, emotion that doesn't lead to action leads only to more sin and rebellion, and the latter state of the man is a thousand times worse. Here's Saul's problem as we conclude. Saul's problem is this. It's a lifelong pattern of not acting on the light he receives. The Lord gives him a breakthrough. He gets it. He says it. He sees it. And then he doesn't embrace it. 
He doesn't change. And that becomes harder and harder. Once a lifetime has been lived that way, you endanger yourself of committing what is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus alludes to in the Gospels, is simply this. The Holy Spirit showing you the truth and you resisting that truth until death, dying in your sin in light of having known the truth is a sin that cannot be forgiven. And the only sin that is mentioned that cannot be forgiven is actually dying in your sin. If you're ever afraid you've committed that sin, it's proof all the theologians say it is sure proof that you have not committed it because you wouldn't care if you committed it. He said it to the Pharisees who, who looked at him and said, you know who you are? You are the devil. And the Lord said, whoa, you're getting real close to something here. The Holy Spirit has shown you great things. And you're calling me the devil? You're in danger here. They wouldn't take the light that God had shown on their hearts and put it into practice. And therefore, they got further and further and further away. So tonight, when God talks to you, you know, we're not talking about losing your salvation, but we are talking about losing some blessings. If God has told you, hey, stop doing this, this is wrong. You need to stop doing that because it's wrong. If he's saying, hey, you're overly negative and you're really wrecking this marriage, you need to, to listen and not just say, hey, yeah, that's probably a good idea, and then go back to the way it always is on Monday. That's the, the sure way to avoid becoming like Saul. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Father, none of us want to be like Saul. It's so fascinating that 28 generations from David, the Holy Spirit goes through a distant relative of his. Mary and God the Son comes into human history the Son of David times 28 generations and in so many ways Jesus David was like Jesus and Jesus like David let us be like our father who when reviled didn't revile back and when he was cursed he offered blessings instead people nailing him to the cross he's all about forgiveness David was like that and the son of David was like that always entrusting to the father's will not trying to take any shortcuts he's just trusted himself and said father I'm going to serve you thy will be done not my will and therefore, God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he said, I'll serve you unto death, the death of the cross. Let's be like our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust the Father with all of our hearts. Amen. Now, Father, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be like our Father, to be like you, our everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, to take these truths to heart in the moment 
when it counts to respond as you would respond. Help us to do just that. Be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.